For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's And today I've, uh, I've, I'm taking a walk outdoors with, uh, with Daniel Gill. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Nice to, nice to be here with you. And uh, what's the title of the film that we've come to talk about? Uh, the title is called Modern Life is Rubbish. And you directed this movie, yeah? Yeah, I directed it. Uh, and it's, um, it's playing in, in the UK at the moment to 10 picture house cinemas. Cool. And at the moment means we're talking on Sunday the 6th of May and it should run for the week, shouldn't it? At the, uh... Yeah, I think the last screening's Thursday the, the 10th. So, so after, um... after the 10th, is it going to be available on various VOD platforms and stuff? Yeah, it's um, on on Monday. Uh, so this coming Monday, uh, it comes out on VOD, home entertainment, uh, and DVD in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people that can't see it in the cinema, uh, they will be able to get their hands on it on on iTunes, um, renting it, buying it, HMV, um, and various other uh, digital platforms. Brilliant, brilliant. So let's tell people, give a brief synopsis to what modern life is rubbish about, because anybody with a, with a cute ear on 90s uh, popular culture will know that's the name of a Blur album, but what's the, what's the story of your film? Uh, it's really about um, a couple at the end of their relationship uh, sorting through their music collection, uh, putting it in boxes as they pack up their flat, mm-hmm. and every time they pick up a, a CD or ticket stub or hear a song, we flash back and see um, how they got together. So it's sort of bittersweet. It's the bitter process of separating your music collection with someone you once loved and the euphoria of falling in love. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a sort of indie rom-com, I'd call it. So is it, so is it, so is it, is it deconstructing a relationship? Like, the, like almost like, I mean, it's just like a crass comparison. Um, like, Irreversible is to the revenge movie. This is like the, the irreversible of a, of a relationship that can't be fixed. But let's see what it looked like when it was good. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just um, a story where you, like like many people do, when you hear a song or or look, look at something, we you know you sometimes get nostalgia and you think about that time where you had a good moment and you fell in love. Um, and yeah, it's just what we try to do is try and make a clever spin on the romantic comedy genre um, and do something 
similar to what like 500 days of summer did where mm. we're we're kind of flitting backwards and forwards and and you know learning things on the way that's probably a better example than my Gaspar Noé uh, leap in the dark I think I think for this genre maybe <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was, I was revealing more about my, my horror, my horror preferences there. But anyway, yeah. Um, so Philip, there are, no Gold- rape, there are no rape scenes in this movie. Yeah, no, no. Let's not, let's not, let's not give people that impression. Uh, so Philip Gawthorne wrote the screenplay. What, at what stage did you get involved as a director? Well, Phil, Phil um, was somebody who I met really not through the film industry at all. Um, okay. He. He was very, very early in his career. I mean, he's a he's a very established writer now who works in Hollywood and he's writing, you know, big um, Hollywood movies. Uh, but when I met him, um, you know, he was working in a call centre with my brother. And okay. uh, he um, he wasn't a he was writing plays that were being put on um, around London but in the kind of um, the fringe theatres let's call it mm-hmm. and um one of those plays was um, modern life is rubbish and um i got introduced to phil and i wanted to make a short film and i asked him to send me three plays which he he had and one of them was modern life is rubbish and i immediately gravitated towards this script and i said look can we whittle it down into 12 pages um it, at that point it was a, a 25 minute short play and he did that and we, he sold me the rights for a pound, and um, and then I managed to scrape together a little bit of money um, that I had um, from from just savings, and get a crew together and get um, some cast. Uh, we had Rafe Spool um, play um, Liam in the short film, and and we made the short film in a, in a mate's um, apartment over the course of two days over a weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, that f- that film did really well. It just it it kind of um, it kind of rocketed and did well on the festival circuit and premiered at the London BFI Film Festival. Excellent. And from that, people were like, "Why don't you make this into a feature? We like we love it." So, so, so just give so give people a sense of time then. So the film's out now. So when 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 was the short film doing the festival circuit? Uh, it, it I think I think I finished the short film about two thousand and nine. Okay, uh, and then it had a couple of years. It had a couple of years in the festival, mm-hmm. and during that time, I think it was about 2012, we got a little bit of development finance to make to write it into a script. Yeah, uh, and Phil and I mapped it out, and then he went off and wrote it. And uh, so it took. It's taken a while, um, and as as your listeners will know, it does take some time uh, to make a film. As the host, uh, as we, the host of the podcast, well knows, still still waiting for that first film. Yeah, and and we had various various things that when you're making an independent movie, it's not it's not always straightforward. You know, we had we had some cast attached originally, and then they they dropped out because of their um, schedule, and then we had some finances on board that then moved around, and you know, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. One, you know, and if one piece kind of falls out, then it, it all kind of it all sort of falls down a little bit, and you've got to pick up the piece and start again. Now, now I can imagine when you when you took a uh, when you got hit, Phil, to sort of whittle down to what was the short that became the short film. When you're now building it back up, it was still only what, what did you say? It was 25 pages originally the the play. Yeah. So when the pair of you were going, okay, let's make well, let's, it'd be a great idea to make this into a feature film. How how did that? How did the pair of you work together? Because you you, you, actually, you I think you said just before that. 
you, you, you worked on it and then Phil went off and then wrote that up, as it were. So what was that process of developing the feature film idea and structure? Well, you know what? It actually happened, if I recall, at the um, Cannes Film Festival because we had, we had Modern Life is Rubbish in the, in the short film corner, which doesn't mean that it's in the Cannes Film Festival itself, but yeah. it, it was playing a, a sort of an arm of the festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember we went there and we thought, OK, let's go to Cannes, let's have a weekend there. And, you know, we, we, we supported the film and told everybody about it and tried to get people to see it. And then, um, and then I just remember we were we were we couldn't get a taxi one night, so we were walking to this this nightclub, which was miles out of Cannes. It must have taken us about an hour and a half to walk there. And, a nightclub. Um, yeah, it was a great nightclub actually. It had a revolving <laughs> dance floor, <laughs> which I've never experienced before. But um, we we had a good laugh that night. And I just remember on that journey, that hour and a half journey, you know, we had a couple of beers and we were just talking about the film and just sort of starting to generate ideas. And, um, and and then we went off and had a great night. And then the next day, I think Phil started jotting down some of those ideas. And and when we got back to London, we spent, I think it was a couple of weeks, just in his flat, just, um, you know, just trying to develop the story. Yeah. And then Phil went off for about six weeks. He's he's a very quick writer. Um, yes. And, uh, and wrote the, the screenplay. And then... And then we got a bit of development money from the BFI and they, they helped us um, develop it even further. Um, so Phil did various drafts um, and, uh, and then, yeah, and then I think it was about 2012, 13, we had, we had a full feature script that was ready to send out. Now, now for those people who, who've not developed a screenplay, what, what, was the, what was the kind of development notes you were getting to help get the script to be ready to send out from, say, the BFI? I think we had I think we had a lot of notes about the backstory about the about their story and their family um okay. you know I I just a bit like Blue Valentine I wasn't really that interested in that person's father or mother or whatever I was more interested in the relationship but they I remember one of their notes was you know let's let's learn a little bit about their um you know where they've come from and who who their parents are and all that kind of thing um funny enough when we got into the edit um I cut all those scenes out um we did <laughs> we did shoot most of them but um i just didn't i felt they were slowing the story down and they weren't relevant we we do have a scene in the film where uh we we see liam's mum which is a, a beautiful and a charming scene uh, mm. but some of the other scenes uh i i took out but that was one of their notes and um, I can't remember the rest of it actually. I no, that's, that's, that's illustrative. That just to, as an because because when when I spoke to uh, Deborah Hayward about um, about pincushion, an exercise she did was was that was 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 not so much to include it, but to write like a fleshed out version of the screenplay with all right. the backstory in, so yeah. to know that to know you understood it and then take it out. Yeah, but, it, but well, it was we did. Well, we did that with the cast because one of the things I did with the cast is I, I gave them both a moleskin notebook, of, you know, as soon as I met them on our rehe- first rehearsal day. And I said, right, in a couple of days, could you give me this, um, this book back with your whole entire history? You know, who, who you first fell in love with, when your first kiss was, what your favorite music is, what your favorite colors are, you know, what school you went to and, you know, they did it, and then we, we spent a whole day discussing it. So that's how I generally work with cast. I, I like to map out their whole character from, from birth till, till when, when the story starts. 
So this is this is in addition to your screenplay's what the screenplay's one thing which gives the actor the the kind of what the character does, and then you you invite them to tell you what they think the character was and is. Yeah, that you know what what I really want is a is a book mm. with the whole entire life of that character from okay. their perspective, um, and it you know I like it to be really really detailed. So it goes down to you know. I don't know what their favourite colour is, you know, um, and not that it's relevant to, to necessarily to the um, the script, but it's just good for them to, to know this. I mean, it is a bit relevant because when they're choosing costumes with me, they can go, oh, I think Liam would would like this. You know, I think Natalie would like this, you know, so it is um, it's amazing how when you're going through so much detail, it actually does help you um, when you're when you're when you're shooting scenes and when you're making a film. No, I can imagine. I mean, I've, I've, from, even from a screenwriting point of view, I've, I've sat at a table and been quizzed by people who've read the script, and I had to remain in character for the entire time and answer their questions as if I was the character, which is yeah, kind of a very weird experience, but, but it informed uh, it a lot. <clears throat> yeah, and what we do in rehearsals as well is we, mm. um, we rehearse scenes that, that precede scenes in the script, so they're not actually in the script, but there may be a scene or two before the scenes that are in the script. Mm. So that by the time the actors come to shoot those scenes, they know what, what has been before. So they, they can get into the, the character and the emotions much quicker. Where, 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 did, where, did this, um, where did this idea come from from you? Was it something you tried out or was it something you'd seen other people do and it worked for them? Yeah, I can't. You know what? I can't actually remember. I mean, I, I, I've worked with Andrew Arnold as a as an AD, yeah. and I think some some of her techniques may have rubbed off. But and also, I, I've read some some um, uh, some some information about Mike Lee, and I think he does a similar thing. I mean, I know that he constructs characters and stories from scratch with the actors, but yeah. I guess um, I guess I I believe in this philosophy and this way of working, and and I certainly saw it working on Modern Life is Rubbish because I think when people see the film, the chemistry between the characters is very real. And I think that's obviously testament to the brilliant actors that that we, we have in the film, but also the preparation and the rehearsals and mapping out character and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess, I guess in a way it's a, very, it's a fairly organic way of all getting on the same page, pun intended, like... <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but I, I think it I think you've you know, we had a five week shoot uh, and we shot over 50 locations in five weeks. And Jesus Christ, you, really? you know, yeah, and we had a week with the actors beforehand to rehearse. And I think when you're making a love story, you need to do everything you can in your power to uh, try and create a lifelong relationship, you know, in a very small period of time. Yeah, yeah, I suppose the key, the key to the success of the story is going to be, I believe, as a viewer, that they've known each other for the period of time that we're supposed to look back on. Exactly, and, and I, I sent them on dates every night and to music gigs and bowling and, you know, um, all this kind of stuff that would happen every evening after rehearsals because, you know, they didn't know each other. It's two strangers meeting for the first time. Mm. And then a week later, they're supposed to be in love with each other, you know, in a 10-year relationship. Now there's Sorry. there's a there's a there's a promo clip knocking about for the film, which is uh, looks like a fairly catastrophic memory of their relationship. Um, so I think we can talk about this without without worrying too much about 
about... I'd take you a bus. I figured you were. Or we'd be in attacked by aliens, wouldn't you, then? Um, I'm glad the bus has gone. Uh, I was I was just saying. I think I've I've seen I've I've not seen the film, but I've seen I've seen a promo clip. So I feel like I'm safe talking about this from a kind of directorial point of view. It's a it's a fairly uh, sort of tragic comedy scene in the sense it's 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 the girl coming back to a tent in a festival. I'm guessing, and it's pissing it down, and they've got a tin of beans. The cash machine's got no money or big queues, and they can't get food, and. This turns into a conversation about him sort of projecting pa- passive aggressively the uh, the difference between a man saying it's okay and a woman saying it's okay, and the fact that if a woman says it's okay or fine, should I say, uh, it means actually it's not fine. <clears throat> now that whole that that sit, do you wanna, can you talk us through the like the the, 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 crea- the creation of that of that scene, like the production of it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't go to a music festival because we, even though I wanted to, we couldn't, we couldn't really afford to um, okay. get a crew. And we shot in, I think it was October, so there weren't any festivals around at that time. Right. Uh, so we, we found, a, a, our location manager found a, a sort of, it's a bit like a park really, or, or green. Mm-hmm. And um, the art department pitched a load of tents and we got about 20 extras. And we shot that scene, and then in in post we put a whole festival on in the background. Um, I, I had a VFX budget, um, and that was one of the, the the one of the scenes that I spent the money on. <laughs> really? So yeah. So everything you see in 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 the background there, uh, apart from twenty tents in the foreground, is a is a is VF, VFX constructed. The the camera is an absolute lying bastard these days, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, which is pretty amazing, and the, the actual inspiration from the scene came from uh, when I was at the Glastonbury Music Festival many years ago. Yeah, and I remember, you know, I don't know if, if you've ever been to a festival, you know, you, everyone's on top of each other, you're packed in like sardines, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, the uh, I just remembered uh, that there were this couple next to me just basically having a breakup. You know, and it was as if they were in the same tent as me because it was so, so close and so, um, uh, you know, it, it was so easy to, to, to hear. So um, I talked about it with Phil and he, he thought it was a great idea for um, to create a scene, you know, um, in, in the film. Yeah, no, because cause it, it, it can, it can, obviously, like I said, it's only, it's only a bit I've seen of, of the film thus far, but it, it can, it conveys quite a lot, because on the one hand, you go, okay, it's a cheap gag by a bloke who's, who's just a, mis- who's maybe a bit sexist and, a, and, and possibly misogynist, but, but it's actually, it's actually just about growing up and, and the look on her, and all the way through it, the look on your, look on her face, you're kind of going, Jesus Christ, man, can't you see that you're in the wrong? And the more the, t- the more you're talking, the more you're wrong. Yeah, true. True. There's also um, uh, the trailer. If anyone wants to, to see the trailer, that's out as well. Because mm-hmm. um, we we basically got various clips from some of the scenes yeah. uh, to help us with the promotion of the film. But then there is actually a trailer on YouTube, um, which you know you just type in "Modern Life is Rubbish" and you'll find it. We'll put we'll put that in the show notes when when it goes out on the Britflix. Oh, okay, on. cool. Brilliant. What would you What would you say was the uh, in in terms of expanding it out from the from the, the the short and the play to a feature film? What were the biggest storytelling challenges for you and uh, you and Phil? Um, well, the band. I mean, in in the short film, there there was there was nothing about the band. 
Um, and in the feature film, the, the B story is, a, is the evolution of the band. So it's a romance, it's a love story. But Liam, the protagonist, is in, in a band called Head Cleaner, which okay. is a, a fictional band. And I think one of the biggest challenges was we had to find actors, we had to create a band. And then we also had, there's also original music in the film uh, okay, by Head Cleaner. There's three or four tracks in the film that you can actually, you can actually buy on iTunes uh, now. If you go onto iTunes and you type in Head Cleaner, there's an EP available. Um, That's very meta. And, uh, yeah. And um, that was a big challenge because it's not easy creating original music um, with, with, you know, with, uh, with, with your actors. But yeah. luckily, Josh Whitehouse was the lead. He's in a band. He plays the guitar. He sings. And we had a brilliant producer called Ben Parker. And they both worked very well together and created these amazing, um, these amazing songs for the band Head Cleaner. Um, so that was a challenge, but I'm hoping that your audience will agree we, we pulled it off. No, no, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I remember I spoke to Johnny Owen about his film Svengali, which is about a guy coming to London to, to tell everyone about this fantastic band in Wales. And I think I remember from him, it was like, you know, it was, you needed people who could play. And I think even Michael Winterbottom did it with, um, with 24 hour party people, the people he cast in the roles of bands. I mean, I know, for example, like John Sims is in a band in reality, as well as... Sony, yeah, well, we, we, we didn't have... We were lucky with Josh, because originally I, originally I had Sam Claflin as, as the lead, and he, he, didn't, um, he didn't play guitar or sing, so we, I think we would, have, we would have struggled, actually, to really get those authentic performances. But with Josh, as I said, he's in a band, he plays the guitar, he sings. Um, Will Merritt, who plays Ollie... He's the bass player, and he, he had some experience playing bass. Um, but Matt Mill, who's the drummer, he had never, he'd never um, been on the drums before. So we had to get um, our music producer and some, some, um, some training done uh, with him to, to learn the drums in a week. <laughs> blimey, blimey. Now, uh, Tim, Tim Siddle is your cinematographer of the movie. Um, yeah. what, what was your conversations with him or his conversations with you about the look and feel of the film? Where were you taking your inspirations from? What were you, what were you trying to achieve? Well, I think when you, when you see the movie, you know, it's a film about not, nostalgia, really. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about was, OK, how can we make this film feel like, um, you know, feel like a sort of Instagram post where you, you've got sort of filters you know, on, on it. And you've got, a you've got kind of, um, you know, a, a sort of slightly washed out feel. Um, so it feels a bit, a, a bit vintage and a bit timeless. And, uh, uh, he, he did such an amazing job at creating this. And we, we were filming with kind of lenses that sort of had, you know, dirt and grit and all, all sorts of, you know, scratches on to give it that kind of, that kind of vintage feel. And, mm -hmm. um, we didn't shoot on film. We shot on on uh, digital. But I, I hope people will think that it it does feel very filmic and very visual. And um, and uh, yeah, that was our, our kind of inspiration from from the beginning. And uh, if if you were, if you did you say you, you you shot in was you say fifty locations over twenty five days? I think so. Yeah, I think it was about fifty five locations in thirty days, um, all all across London. So it was an incredibly 
taxing um, shoot. And I'm not sure how we quite pulled it off because if anybody knows London, it takes hours to move from one area to another. What would be, what got, would be, you know, what's the uh, best, what, what, across those many locations then, what was, what was your kind of best experience shooting in London? Or what, sorry, where was your best experience? I'll tell you my worst experience. We shoot on, we shoot on the um, Zebra Crossing on Abbey Road. Right. Um, and being a low budget production, we didn't have the money to get a police lock off, which, you know, on the bigger films, you hire police for the day and they lock off roads for you. Okay. Um, so you shoot for five minutes or whatever and then they, they release the traffic and let that go and then you continue doing that so we, we didn't have that luxury so we, we had to shoot on, ze- on the zebra crossing of Abbey Road which is the, bu- the busiest zebra crossing in the world obviously because of the Beatles <laughs> and the studios and we, that was a very stressful day because um, you know, it was very hard to control that zebra crossing and, and achieve what we needed to achieve but uh, luckily we did it so if that was the worst, what was what was the best? Where's the best place to be shooting in London for for filmmakers in your experience? <laughs> Probably in a studio where you've got complete control of everything. <laughs> um, because, no, we shot. We, yeah, we shot quite a lot of the. Um, we shot about a week in um, Three Mill Studios okay. um, in some of the interior sets, and that was great because you know we had complete control. We were on sound stages, um, so that that was great. But um, I'm just trying to think, really. Uh, I think I think some of the stuff on in the gigs was great as well. We shot in in the um, you know some of the some of the music locations were really cool, and we got all the extras in there, and you know um, you know that felt good. So you what you were literally recreating a gig to to, to yeah film. we we had to re, in the film there's there's various gigs, um, mm. so we had to we had to recreate gigs um, uh, at the forum, the forum in Kentish Town. Um, and the Lexington, which is, is quite a, a, a big gig venue in London. Yeah, yeah, so we, again, again, we had a limited amount of extras and we had to sort of try and make it look full and try and find clever ways of, uh, you know, making it look like a packed gig. Um, I didn't have time to do VFX shots, um, where you, you take your, you know, where you take your hundred extras and you, you make them look like thousands. Um, mm. cause, uh, Again, we we had a very sh- short. Uh, so what what tricks time. did uh, what tricks did Tim bring to the table then in terms of making it look like more people that were there for you? No, I just think what we did is that we focused on the characters and the, the people, you know, the band and people like that, rather yeah. than you know big wide shots out to the to the. You know, we have got some of those in in the film. Yeah. Um, and it it does look like a packed gig, but I wanted it to be right back. You know seeing thousands of people there but we um we could have done that if we had half a day to do you know crowd replication but we um as i said you know 50 over 50 locations in london in in, in five weeks you, you generally don't have half a day to do a crowd replication shot you know which is about five seconds in a film you know yeah 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 understandable well look let's uh let's remind it's, it, i'm talking to you now sunday 6th of may 2018 let's remind people how they can see modern life is rubbish yeah it's on in 10 picture house cinemas uh in london it's on in brixton ritzy uh greenwich stratford crouch end picture house central um and it's also on in liverpool um edinburgh york and cambridge Brilliant. um it, plays until the until thursday which i think is the 10th of may yeah um and
And, you know, it'd be great if your listeners could, could watch it in the cinema because obviously the sound uh, being from all the music and all the gigs. It, we've also got about 35 tracks in the film um, from various artists, um, Radiohead, Stereophonics, uh, Cocteau Twins, um, White Lies, Libertine. So the music is, is worth seeing in the cinema. Um, but if, if they can't make it, then it's out on DVD and home entertainment from Monday. I have to ask, now you've told me that, I didn't even think about the music element, but just, just one last question. Um, how do you, how do you and your music supervisor get to secure all that for, for a low budget movie? What was, what was the task there, do you think, to, to get what you needed? Well, we, we always talked about music being the, the sort of third character of the film. So we always, yeah. always had money kept aside for, for music. Um, but we were, I was very lucky. I got a music supervisor called Ian Neal, um, who is an amazing music supervisor. He's supervised on most of Guy Ritchie films and Matthew Vaughan films. And he's, you know, hundreds of films he's worked on. Yeah. And he's very well connected and he, he loved the project. And, you know, um, Ian Neal and also the other music supervisor, Ian Cook, did a brilliant job of basically allowing me to have most of the tracks that I wanted. I mean, there were, there was only a few tracks that I couldn't get, which is really remarkable considering what we, what we got. I mean, we, as I said, we got Radiohead, the Libertines, Stereophonics, uh, White Lies, Cocteau Twins, the Kooks, the Vaccines. I mean, it was incredible. It's an incredible soundtrack. Excellent. Well, look, congratulations on the film and, uh, we'll, Thank get, you. we'll get this out on the, uh, on the iTunes as soon as we can. And, uh, thanks for giving us your time on the Blitfish podcast. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.